how many women could have excelled in professions that they were denied admittance to mm -hmm. or discouraged from entering? And what has our world lost out on because of the limitations that men and women have faced? So you know, li liberal feminism is about breaking down those boundaries for everybody. Hello and welcome to Women, Economic Progress, and Markets, a special podcast where we're reflecting on the ways in which economic progress has historically affected women's well-being. The goal is to have a conversation about whether markets can serve as a vehicle for beneficial, long-term, and holistic solutions to cultural and social issues that have hindered individual and collective progress for women. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jamie Lemke about her work and about the role that markets play in women's lives. Dr. Lemke is a senior fellow at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. A main focus of her research is on exploring the historical origins of women's rights. So I am so excited to have you here to have this conversation with us. Um, I find your work so interesting. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, it's always nice to see you and thank you for the flattering comments already. <laughs> well, you know, there are very few people who, who work in this space. And uh, I know that you and I have often joked that we really love markets, but we are also consider ourselves to be feminists. And so in the circles that we travel in, we don't quite fit so well with traditional feminist groups and we don't quite fit so well with traditional lovers of markets. And so I am happy to have this conversation with you because we both kind of think that there's there's kind of, you know, it could benefit both sides to, to have this chat. Yeah, all the, I think in both cases, our outsiderness depends very much on how you define traditional. Yes. I would so argue Let's the start roots there. of both of those philosophies are just in the heart of the liberal tradition, but I know, I know we're going to get into more detail about that as we go along. Absolutely. Um, so let's start there, right? How would you define feminism, right? That definition has changed. What kind of feminist would you consider yourself to be? And how is that different from what we might think of as like modern mainstream feminism? Sure. Um, feminism can mean so many things, so it's good to start with a definition. So the first uh, distinction I would maybe offer is that there's a difference between feminist activism and feminist philosophy. So feminist activism, I would define as the pursuit of political, economic, and legal rights for women. Um, other people can add different components onto that project as well, but that's I think a, a common core that most feminist activists share. Um, feminist philosophy is a body of inquiry that asks what would it mean to treat women justly? Um, and the reason why this becomes a particular question of interest. So the reason why we ask, 
why do, how can we treat women justly? And the answer to that question might be different from just how can we treat each other justly or people justly is because of the historical empirical fact of the existence of institutional systems like coverture where women lose their rights when they marry or other forms of coercive subservience um, that specifically make the demands of justice different and sometimes more challenging to achieve when we're talking about women in particular. Um, Feminism, you know, I struggled a lot with whether or not to include the E word in that definition, equality. Mm -hmm. Um, It's uh, because I I know it uh, triggers a lot of people in different ways. Um, But you do often find feminism defined as some form of equality, maybe equality between the sexes um, or political and economic equality, something like that. And that's not untrue. Um, But it's not completely true either, depending on how you define equality. That's why I I think the focus on justice is maybe more true as a common denominator across the feminist project. Mm -hmm. So kind of that more mainstream idea of feminism might be capturing the feminist activism more than the feminist philosophical project. Yeah, I think probably a lot of people are more familiar with the feminist activism. That's what you're going to see on the news rather than feminist philosophy, which I don't mean just within the academic discipline of philosophy, but starting with a philosophical foundation of feminism and then building your social theory from there. So that happens or can be an approach in any social science. Um, But yeah, I think most are probably more familiar with feminist activism. Um, My colleague, Michaela Novak, has some really interesting work on activism and social movements in general. Mm -hmm. Um, So this book she recently published is called Freedom in Contention. Um, I can't remember the exact subtitle, but it's about social movements. It's about the history of liberalism. And one of the things that she points out there about activism is that activism is a it's a collective endeavor that's trying to bring about a particular goal. Mm-hmm. And that group is going to pick whatever strategy they think is going to be most successful to achieve their outcome. Mm-hmm. It's just an entirely different decision-making structure than an academic inquiry that you're undertaking for the the sake of getting at some type of truth. Mm-hmm. So it's a, that's why I think it's worth distinguishing between yeah. the philosophy and the, not that they're not both worthwhile, not that they haven't both been incredibly important in shaping uh, the op- opportunities that women have today and, and our views about gender mm-hmm. in society, um, but they're different projects. Yeah. Um, so as economists, Do you think that this feminist philosophy is a worthwhile conversation to have in economics? I do. Um, And the reason why, 
is kind of twofold. It, first, it's a slightly different set of methodological presumptions mm -hmm. that might um, emphasize or suggest different ways of analysis. Um, so one example of this that I know um, you've brought up before yourself is how do we think about productivity in an economy? Mm -hmm. And do we include unpaid domestic labor in how we think about what an economy is producing? Mm -hmm. um, so that would be a critique that might um, suggest a challenge to some approaches of economic analysis. So like thinking about value in a broader way mm -hmm. is something that heterodox economists of all stripes do. Mm -hmm. um, so so feminism can be a, 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 a version of that that's useful in its difference. It also suggests just a totally different set of questions. Right. Um, so much academic scholarship kind of comes from I don't know. I, I like. I, I want to say this in a way that will be kind of open to being heard, but it, it starts from a masculine perspective, and, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in that women can't understand it or men are trying to keep us out, mm -hmm. um, but it's just the nature of the fact that women were kept out of intellectual pursuit and academic professions, especially for so mm -hmm. long, that so much history, so much philosophy has been developed from kind of by men and from a perspective that has treated men's experiences in the world as mm -hmm. equivalent to humans' experiences in the mm -hmm. world. Right without recognizing that as humans, when we're examining the world, our personal experiences really color the questions that are interesting to us and the answers that we might see as feasible answers, right? And so, you know, not a malicious reason, you know, not a malicious thing at all, just by virtue of the fact that the profession has been male dominated, clearly it's going to be, that conversation is gonna be dominated by topics that are seen as very important. Um, there's gonna be a ton of things that are important to men that you and I would not immediately realize. Absolutely. And you know, I think your work is actually a really great example of this. Because if you do something like ask, what is the level of economic freedom in a country? Mm -hmm. And the answer you give to that question is actually, what is the level of economic freedom that men enjoy in that country? Mm -hmm. But you discuss it as if it's the level of economic freedom entirely. Um, you've really, you've left out half the population mm -hmm. and you've created uh, a picture of that economy that is untrue and untrue in a way that we can very specifically identify as being gendered. So you have done, you know, wonderful work that is really correcting that um, 
that way of simplifying that has just left women out of the analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about markets and we talk about how economies function, um, especially when we get to translating the theory of markets into understanding the actual performance of markets, mm-hmm. if we don't realize that that market is operating, performing with, uh, you know, shackles on one of its legs, mm-hmm. we might wind up being really confused. Why, you know, why isn't this market working out so great for everybody as our theory suggested that it should? Well, it's because you had shackles on half the people's legs and you didn't recognize that fact. So, so that makes me think a little bit about, well, a couple of things, right? Because there's a lot of conversations we can get into about, um, you know, economic explanations for things like the gender wage gap or other kind of gendered talent gaps, human capital gaps. Um, Economic explanations for those things aren't typically satisfying to a lot of feminists. And I know you've done some work in this area, so I do wanna talk about that. Um, And then I will table my second question for after we unpack this a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and this is something that um, I know you're interested in as well. So I would love to kind of hear your take on it as well, or if you have anything to add or that you'd correct me on. But but my view of this is that um, when we look at something like a measured wage gap, let, let, just take it because it's an easy example. Yeah. And say our, our econometric results spit out that women earn 92% of what men earn or 95% of what men earn um, after we correct for how many years they've spent in school, how many years they've had on the job, their age, the hours they work, things like this. And that's, and that's roughly what we find about 95%. Um, Some economists might respond to that and say, well, 5%, that doesn't look like much discrimination. Probably all that remainder is just because of the messiness of our measures. So it looks like we don't really have a problem on their hands, on -hmm. our hands. I think that leaves that two things. So so one is that if we really do have just a, a 5% gap, as economists, we should understand that 5% is not actually small. 5% year over year, 5% less reason to um, try to enter a particular field, to choose that particular path, to put your best forth every day that can you know really actually add up mm-hmm. to a bit like a, a big uh hindrance being a big hindrance on our economy right um, and then the second thing it leaves out is that all of those things that you measured the years spent in school the hours working um the field you choose to go in, go into. These are absolutely matters of choice, but like all choices, they do not 
take place in unconstrained environments. They take place within institutional environments that have specific rules, specific incentives. So that's not an answer to the question, but it suggests that there's a whole set of questions that still needs to be asked mm -hmm. that some people are asking and other people are rejecting from the outset without considering them. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, are there institutions and, and that could be common practices that could be um, artifacts that are still left in our legal code from our history of patriarchal institutions. If we broaden our discussion to talking about women around the world, which I think we should, we shouldn't overly um, focus on our own circumstances. Um, there are still big parts of the world where there are laws that prohibit women from working particular jobs, that mm -hmm. prohibit women from working without their husband's permission that prohibit women from divorcing a husband who won't give that permission, that prohibit women from leaving the country without that husband's permission. These are really strong restrictions. Um, and so understanding that the impact that these might have on the choices that are made and recognizing that these institutions might have a discriminatory effect, even if it's not the intention mm -hmm. of the individuals making hiring decisions, I think is a very legitimate set of questions in the social sciences that economists should absolutely be considering. I know this is a point that you've brought up before, right? As economists, we kind of say, or, or a lot of economists say, okay, it's the choices they're making, right? And and we acknowledge, yes, these are these are absolutely choices that people are making. Men and women make systematically different choices, but most economists do not try to unpack why, what shapes those preferences, why are we making systematically different choices? And so I think that's where the institutional analysis becomes really interesting, right? Looking at those formal rules um, in a place like the US or Canada, where we don't have uh, formal shackles on women's choices, we have a lot of informal shackles. Um, you know, those can still be really, really limiting in, in terms of the choices that we're able to, to make. Can you talk a little bit about you know, informal institutions, how they might shape our choices, because I think that is a particular piece. You know, they're hard to measure, and economists sometimes, if we can't measure it, we we ignore it altogether. Yeah. Um, most so J James Buchanan kind of famously said that most economists understand in theory that value is subjective. Mm -hmm but very few of them have worked out the full implications of that for their analysis. And so if the valuation of alternatives, once we recognize that to be a subjective process that's taking place inside people's minds, within our own cognitive structures, and we recognize, so the second piece we need in order for it to make sense is to recognize that our expectations of the world around us are going to be 
shaped by the culture we live in and by our ideology and the sets of ideologies that are available to us. So the way we have of thinking about the world is going to shape what our expectations are of whether or not it's going to be worth trying to go into a particular career. So with respect to women in academia, a lot of people think that the idea, the ideology of viewing women as incapable or just not belonging in academic institutions is old. It's, it's not really that old. Um, there's a fascinating book called um, Keep the Damned Women Out, and I can share it to put in the show notes. I can share the author. Um, and she goes through the historical record of the debates over whether or not to make Ivy League institutions co-ed um, in, in the 1970s. So not yeah. 1870s, 1970s. Um, and you have people writing in things like, why not just establish a brothel on campus? That seems more to the point and more cost effective too. Let's just skip the middleman. You know, there's a wonderful book by Nancy McEl, Wendy McElroy, I'm sorry. Um, that's a, a volume of um, chapters that were solicited on this question of women and liberty. And in one of the chapters, the author recounts applying for a job in an English department in the 1960s and being told, don't like, don't actually bother sending in the application because we don't hire housewives. You know, so this set of expectations is not ancient. It's something that many people still making hiring decisions at universities mm -hmm. existed within either. So first of all, we all know we still have people who are, you know, pr probably still people who were actually making hiring decisions in the sixties working at some universities. Yes. Um, uh, academics do not retire. <laughs> do not retire. Um, and we certainly have all the people that the individuals holding that ideology hired. That's, mm -hmm. that's still going to be, uh, you know, a really significant percentage of who's teaching and making hiring decisions at universities. So ideologies don't change overnight. Ideological change does not happen overnight. So I think we're kidding ourselves um, if we think that there aren't still different expectations for what women and men are capable of. Um, and that's just academic spaces. You know, yeah. we could... There's a lot of really interesting work that could be done to flesh out how those norms can have an impact. Um, another really powerful example that uh, I like to share is from Viviana Zelizer's work. Mm -hmm. And she talks about a married couple who immigrated. Um, I'm going to leave out the details because I don't want to accidentally get them wrong, but right. they immigrated from a society that had more explicitly patriarchal structures still. Mm -hmm. And when they were living there, the husband 
worked for wages outside of the household and the wife performed most of the domestic labor. And in that environment, when she's interviewed, she says, oh, I never said no to sex. Didn't, didn't matter how I felt, if I actually wanted to engage in sexual activity, I just, I always said yes. After they moved to the United States, she says, now I only say yes if I want to. And if I don't want to, I say no, because I'm making money now too. And so I don't owe that. So that's like, that's not a law. Mm-hmm. It, now, in, in some, it, it has historically yes. been a law that women do have to provide sex on demand. And if uh, they don't, at least over some sufficient period of time, that men can lawfully divorce them. There, there's no, like, mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any country where you get, like, thrown in jail. You just right. would be um, divorced or abandoned. Um, or, you know, the laws regarding spousal rape don't find it to be illegal. So you could say no, but yeah, is there a punishment if they don't listen? Yeah. And that's something that lasted even in the United States until the 21st century. So mm-hmm. I need to look for more up-to-date information. The, the last kind of full accounting I saw was from 2005, and there were still many, many states where you had to have a higher burden of proof to show that you were raped by your husband um, or the punishment was lesser mm-hmm. if the woman you raped what was a woman you're married to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the there's also a very, I, I think, and I can share some um, research on this um, for the show notes also. But there's an interplay between our norms and our legal institutions. Mm -hmm. So if you grow up under a set of laws that declares, that makes it mandatory for wives to owe sexual performance to their husbands, how can that not impact the norms? Mm You know, no wonder we became a country then that had to have this really difficult conversation we've been having over the last 10, 20 years about the nature of consent. Mm -hmm. We had laws for centuries that kind of told the majority of men, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And that told wives not to expect it. So it's like the fact that we developed a set of institutions that lacked a clear set of rules for being able that was mutually understood where we could identify whether or not consent was present in the interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not surprising. It's exactly what you would expect out of that institutional environment. And the interplay between institutions, formal and informal institutions can go the other way as well. Right. Um, so obviously social norms can impact the rules that that get in, embedded um, into law. But I, I often think about you had brought up that there's a lot of countries that have formal rules restricting what jobs you can do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think about and I use this example a lot. So forgive me if, I, if other people have heard me say this before. But 
like let's say you're a woman who really wants to enter into a male-dominated industry and you live in a country where there is a law that says you legally cannot do a job in this industry you have no opportunity to challenge the informal expectations you have no opportunity to change the norms if you at least have permission it's not to say that we're going to see women flooding you know the construction industry anytime soon but if they at least have permission then there are going to be people who that does represent their best opportunity and they are going to pursue that and then you have the ability to see norms change but those uh, formal institutions can really you know, lock in some of the norms that would otherwise, you know, be challenged. And here's another example of norms uh, creating a challenge or a possible barrier to progress. So the first modern industry in the United States was the textile industry. Mm -hmm. So production of textiles has traditionally been considered women's work. So prior to industrialization, it was something that um, women were producing singly or in small groups um, within households working on looms to uh, transform wool or cotton into some kind of usable cloth. And so when this started to be powered by water, powered by steam, and now there are these large factory environments where you can uh, you know, one woman can now, with steam power rather than just her own manual power behind her, she can now produce four times, ten times the amount of cloth in an hour. But when industrialization was new, there did not exist a set of social norms that was comfortable with young women moving away from home other than for marriage. So these companies had to actually uh, hire people to take on a kind of an educational role and a recruiting role. And they would go around to farming communities in the Northeastern United States and have conversations with families to basically convince them um, this is not a front for prostitution. This is not going to ruin your daughter. She's still going to be able to, you know, get married and raise a family. It's not something... Uh, she's not going to be sucked into the seedy underbelly of an urban environment. Like it's safe. We'll mm -hmm. we'll make sure she goes to church. We'll provide, you know, we'll um, have a, a matron overseeing things in the living quarters, things like that. So part of the reason why these early industrialists had to make that kind of investment was that they were working on shifting norms mm -hmm. from a set of norms where, well, I mean, at the beginning of industrialization, most people worked in the home at the home. Right. Um, and so that includes most women, but they were in an environment where there was not, yeah, that set of norms didn't exist. They had to be norm entrepreneurs and suggest kind of a different way of relating and see if it would catch on. Um, but yeah, so kind of progress for women, progress in general has always required not just changing formal institutions, but also working to, you know, adapt, update norms to new ways. And, and you know, going back to those performance gaps and the gender wage gap, 
um, you know, social norms and expectations about is it the woman or the man that is going to shoulder the majority of the child rearing and household labor? If society is putting the greater expectation on women fulfilling those roles, then obviously we're going to be making systematically different choices about careers because we need to be more flexible uh, to to do this work that we are are expected to do. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea that gendered norms are something that have a, a really significant impact on men as well as women, I think is really important to recognize that this yeah. is a part of bringing a, a feminist philosophy into social science as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, treating it, the version of feminism that I'm talking about, by the way, is mostly liberal feminism. Right. So there is radical feminism, right. which like, like any other kind of radical philosophy, it often has kind of Marxist or related origins. And it argues that liberal ways of relating to each other, whether that's through liberal democracy, through open markets, um, that they just fundamentally don't work and are oppressive and and we need a completely new structure. So I'm, I'm not talking about that kind of feminism, but but liberal feminism has its roots primarily in Mary Wollstonecraft and in, and in John Stuart Mill, mm-hmm. um, depending on who you ask. And one argument that they both make is that patriarchal relations in the family are fundamentally corrupting to both men and women. Mm-hmm. So they encourage petty tyranny among men and they encourage um, subservience and focus on pleasing others, specifically pleasing men in a marriage market among women. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is something that is limiting for everybody. It limits the sphere of autonomy. Like you said, how many men in the 20th century, especially um, in the later part of the 20th century, where it would be very easy for them to take care of children on their own just fine. Um, We Mm -hmm. have the technology now. Um, How many of these men might have loved to be stay-at-home fathers? Right. And And how many men today, I think about, you know, the court system and kind of the default to give mothers custody over the children. If we have a, you know, you know, custody hearing, uh, women are more likely to get get custody, even if the mother's maybe not the best parent. Um, that's damaging to everybody. Uh, yeah. The fact that men are statistically, you know, they're working statistically more dangerous, hazardous jobs. Um, that is not just gender norms, but it's also, again, those limiting formal rules that for so long kept women out of those types of occupations. Yep. And that's the, it's the flip side of the coin that cannot be detached from the question of how many women could have excelled in professions that they were denied admittance to. 
-hmm. or discouraged from entering? And what has our world lost out on because of the limitations that men and women have faced? So, you know, li liberal feminism is about breaking down those boundaries for everybody and recognizing that when we unnecessarily limit choice, we harm the person whose choice is limited. We harm ourselves for the way that it limits our choices and also for the way that it discourages people from freely choosing how they can best be a part of that world. And part of, I think, a, a core belief in the philosophy of liberalism is that it's through allowing people the freedom to be creative, to bring alternative ways of of doing things, and that includes producing economic goods. It also includes ways of living. But that kind of freedom to create is the primary driver of progress in our society. And when we deny people that opportunity to bring their best forward into the world, we're we're holding back progress. You know, we're holding back what Hayek called the Great Society. Mm -hmm. I think about these, you know formal restrictions on women's participation in the economy. And I always think about Adam Smith and you know the scope of the market. Why are we artificially restricting the scope of the market? It seems like the opportunity cost, like what we are giving up in terms of talent, ideas, um, you know, it just, it seems massive. Do you know of, I think, I think you have mentioned in the past some papers that kind of look at that not to put you on the spot. We can cut this out if we need no, to. No, <laughs> yeah. There's um, one that I could remember off the top of my head was an IMF study in 2009 um, by Christine Lagarde, and she might have had um, multiple co-authors on this as well, so I apologize for not knowing their names. Um, but essentially, she they put together estimates of how much economic productivity is lost by excluding women from the workforce and the marketplace. And in some countries that have the strictest, you might call them um, patriarchal legal structures or just restrictions on women's rights, these countries are sacrificing up to 30% additional GDP by not including women in the market. That's massive. Yeah. And that's not really fully taking into account what the contributions of those women could be in the long run after they have the opportunity to become educated, to invest in learning different uh, professions, sets mm. of skills. Um, so I think both theoretically and empirically, I think there's a really strong case to be made that a lot of harm has been done um, by limiting freedom of movement and freedom of choice. It's a similar dynamic as to preventing immigrants from participating in the labor market or preventing or Jim Crow laws that prevented African-Americans from participating fully in educational and labor markets. It's the same kind of restriction and it causes the same kind of harm. Not to say it, they don't all have the same cause or motivations necessarily, but they share a commonality in that 
um, at the moment in which they exist, many people find them acceptable and reasonable, but they are actually at their heart forms of bigotry and exclusion. And allowing those to persist is something that makes us all worse off. I think that's such a powerful argument, right? How do you convince somebody who has very strong, you know, gender biases or racial biases that, you know, using this liberal philosophy, it's powerful to reveal that those biases are not just bad for the people that you are biased against, they are bad for you. They are bad for the person that holds those views as well. Um, One of the things I wanna make sure that we talk about, your work, you mentioned the the women working in textile factories, and I know that that's uh, something that you've written about. Um, How, I I would love to hear a little bit about some of the historical cases that you've, you've, you've studied about how women have been able to gain formal economic rights, um, you know, what kind of rules are, are important to allow, to encouraging that to happen. Because um, I think a lot about places that don't have formal economic rights for women, you know, what can we learn from your work about how to, you know, maybe move forward in places that don't currently have women's rights? Yeah. Um- it's hard to generalize with any too great degree of specificity just because of how different the context and the Mm -hmm. history is. Um, But I think one thing that we can learn from looking back at the American experience is just understanding better the nature of these institutional constraints and what forms of interaction might help us change them. Mm-hmm. So to uh, just very briefly, kind of one of my kind of the big questions that motivated my desire to look at women's rights in American history is this question of, okay, you have a group of people, the the history is against them, the, the norms are against them, and the weight of formal law is against them being able to freely make their own choices about how they want to spend their labor, how they want to spend their time and how they want to spend their resources. Um, So in American history at the beginning of the 19th century, most women were married and that marriage relationship meant that all property and all legal decisions were formally made exclusively by the husband. Mm. In most states with either no right to divorce or very stringent requirements for being able to get away from your husband, um, he had to be extremely violently abusive or have abandoned you for at least seven years. Um, Now, he could choose to divorce you if you cheated on him. But that didn't go the other way around in most states. But but so you have all of these limits on that are are coming from the law on women's ability to choose 
their own path for themselves. Mm -hmm. So how is it that 150 years later, at least 200 years later, we have this set of gender relations, which, by the way, the norm I describe at the beginning of the 19th century is essentially the norm that has existed in the Western world and a large part of the rest of the globe since the beginning of modern civilization. Mm. Centuries and centuries. And so then in a 200-year period, you have this change so dramatically to the point now where like you and I are both working in academia and we're getting paid to have a conversation about how this used to be something that we would have been formally banned from doing. Yes. Um, and so one of the things that I have kind of focused on trying to understand is even when you have an institutional environment that is oppressive in so many ways, what are the moving pieces that allow people to start to move that structure to suggest that something could be different? So the fact that we have a really dramatic economic revolution, but by revolution, I mean big, like, like world scale change in the way of doing things means that we don't have already established norms and laws for exactly how that's going to be governed. You have mm. an opportunity to do something new. Right. Similarly, the United States is undertaking this great dramatic experiment. Same thing. The rules aren't clear yet. We have this opportunity to create different sets of rules to decide to do something new. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of detail we could get into like for, like market environments and um, decentralized polycentric political environments are both contexts where individuals have a lot of different choices on which direction they want to go. So like in markets, we say consumers are sovereign in a, in a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's hard to fully get there, but at least the theory is that the citizen is sovereign. So these environments where there's lots of choice, they wind up driving a lot of the innovation and change that we see, not just in the United States in general, but in women's rights, in mm -hmm. what is possible for women. Um, and so access to opportunity, economic opportunity, political opportunity. Um, I have some, uh, a paper that I wrote um, with Julia Norgard, who's a professor of economics at Pepperdine, um, about women's clubs and the way that women produced so many local public goods for their communities, even in a time when they were not legally permitted to hold political office or even to vote. Mm -hmm. They were providing all these public goods by creating their own organizational structures. So I think focusing on where the opportunity is is kind of the best path to institutional change. Mm -hmm. um, and so to the extent that feminism encourages us to look for a different set of opportunities mm -hmm. and to consider finding ways to make these institutional changes, I think it's kind of important not just for 
economics, but also for this um, institutional perspective that looks at what are the ways that we can change the rules of our society in a way that will make them more inclusive, more liberal, um, and better for all. How can we live better together? Yes, exactly. So I want to, since we're almost out of time, I want to just give you an opportunity. I know you mentioned a lot of resources uh, throughout our conversation. I've been keeping myself a little list of things I need to go and order on Amazon after we are done today. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you if there's any you know, particular books, articles, or particular scholars that you might recommend for people who are interested in learning more about, you know, feminism from kind of an individual rights perspective or just feminism and women in markets in general? Um, in addition to your work, of course, which is one of the first things I would recommend to anybody, um, I am really enamored right now of this volume by Wendy McElroy, put together by Wendy McElroy called Liberty for Women, Liberty for Women. Um, and that was put together by the Independent Institute with the help of the Independent Institute in 2002. Um, the chapters in there are such a wonderful introduction to this idea of women's rights and feminism being very much a classical liberal project. Mm -hmm. Um Victoria Bateman's The Sex Factor, I think if you're looking for a more global perspective, is very interesting. Um, and one historian on these issues that I just kind of can't get enough of is Gerda Lerner. Um, so she has a wonderful book called um, The Creation of Patriarchy that looks at the historical institutions through which these norms ideologies and ideologies developed and turned into laws um, and just trying to understand why they became such a significant force in our world. Um, because again, you know, all these, th all these things are resources that kind of seek for understanding, mm -hmm. um, understanding what can be done to, as Peter Betke says in his book, Struggle for a Better World, return to the vision of liberalism as an emancipatory project. Mm -hmm. So one of the, just kind of one last thing that I want to kind of squeeze in before we, um, you know, call time on this is that one of the controversies among feminists is whether or not markets have been good for women. Right. Um, and liberal feminism contains a lot of people who do not think that markets have been good for women. Mm -hmm. But I think if we look at the historical record market participation has brought women market power. It's brought them bargaining power within their relationships. Um, and there are also strong and mutually reinforcing ties between economic rights and political rights. 
Absolutely. So you simply can't have a political structure that is depriving a group of people of the ability to make their own choices, which by the way means that you're instead having those choices made by a, some kind of bureaucratic entity that's being empowered for them. You can't do that. You can't deprive that economic freedom without also hindering political freedom. Um, so if we want to talk about not just improving the lives of women, but also making the world a more free, a more just, a more prosperous place, um, liberal feminism has to be a part of that conversation. So you would come down firmly on the side of we should be feminists. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, because feminism is not, I, I think there's this confusion that feminism is prioritizing the needs of women over the needs of men. Mm -hmm. um, studying injustice, it, it can be done in this way. Um, but it does not need to be an exercise in comparative suffering. Um, you know, studying injustice can be an exercise in understanding how we can make the world a better place for ourselves and for others. It can be an exercise in understanding what caused the injustices of the past so we can avoid them in the future. Um, and when we study things like whether it's sexism, racism, ableism, religious bigotry, um, you know, all these isms, all these ideologies are versions of allowing experts to decide ahead of time that somebody won't be able to contribute. And so they shouldn't even be allowed to. It'll be harmful for them or harmful for other people if they're even allowed to try. Um, so it's kind of feminism is at least it, it can be when it's done in this way that I'm advocating a very inclusive liberal approach to understanding abuses of power and how they can be prevented. There's nothing in that that requires you to prioritize the needs of women over the needs of men or that suggests um, that all people should not be an, you know, included in that conversation in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would absolutely advocate for feminism being a part of our conversation about how to, um, how to live in a liberal world and how to, to treat each other better and to build better institutions. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I could go on for hours um, having this conversation with you. Luckily, you're one of my best friends and we can have this conversation <laughs> uh, outside of podcast world. But I, if, if history is any predictor of the future, we definitely will. We will. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you again. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, head over to FraserInstitute.org for more information. And then subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you like to stream your podcasts. Don't forget to share your thoughts and questions with us on social media. And most importantly, come back again.